This morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of John and we're in chapter 8. Uh, we're in verses 21 through 30. As our Lord continues, he's beginning his, his final six months of ministry. The, the Feast of Tabernacles has just been completed and he's still doing teaching in the temple and that's where we'll find him today as we read in our text. So I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read verses 21 through 30 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the, to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. We see that Jesus is continuing in, in, in his teaching in, in the temple, in how it says, uh, then, that, that tells us there's a progression. He's, we're not sure if that means um, uh, right away, like the next moments he started speaking, or if there's been a break. But as he continues, uh, there's a progression of thought. They still may be in the, the, what's called the treasury or the court of the women. On Wednesday night, we spent a fair amount of time showing where all that is in the temple and how that all connects together. But, um, but there in the temple area, he's still teaching as he, and he, as he goes on. And notice Jesus says again to them. When he, we see that Jesus said again to them, well, that assumes he said before. And that's a, a good and safe assumption. Back in chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus said, You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, where, that where I am, you cannot come. The Jews still do not understand. And so Jesus is making it clear in how he describes himself. He says, I'm going away. You'll seek me, die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And again, they're, they're not entirely understanding and getting that. And so they're speculating in verse 22. Will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And so they're, they're talking among themselves. What's he saying? Now I should point out that that question, will he kill himself? Some of your translations may have it. He won't kill himself, will he? It's... It's a question that assumes a negative answer. He wouldn't, he's not going to kill himself, is he? So what's he talking about? 
previously when Jesus said, you know, I'm going away so you cannot follow, they had a different speculation. Verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And so back then they thought, was he, is he leaving Israel to go out into the, the Gentile realm? Now they're saying, well, go where we cannot follow. Is he going to kill himself? What, what is he talking about? What they don't mention, you know, they're talking all about this go away. We can't follow. We can't find him. We can't go there. But, but connected to all of that and, and helps to explain is a phrase they don't discuss with each other. Have you ever had that problem, maybe if you've been in teaching or even in a conversation, someone sees this on one phrase when that's not even the most important thing they need to think about. What they're not asking is, what does he mean when he says, you will seek me and will die in your sin? That's, the, that's why they won't find him, because they're going to die in their sin. That explains where he's going and where they're not going. Jesus is going back to his home in heaven. They can't go there because they are going to die in their sin. But what does it mean to die in their sin? What does he mean when he says that? A couple passages will, will maybe help show that phrase. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 17 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and 18. Paul writes, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished so there in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians Paul's talking about the resurrection and there were some in Corinth that were because of Greek philosophy saying well really there's no such thing as resurrection and so Paul develops this whole argument in chapter, seven, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians well if there is no resurrection then Christ isn't resurrected and if Christ isn't resurrected, we have no faith. And our whole message is a lie. And he makes this point. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. There's, it's not going to save you. You are still in your sin. If Christ isn't resurrected, you're still in your sin. In Ephesians 2.1, he talks about the fact um, that before we were born again, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And there's a passage that kind of uses this expression in, in Ezekiel, chapter 3, verse 19. So in other words, this is an Old Testament passage they should have known. If you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. So someone who's dying in their iniquity, they're staying in the path of sin and rebellion, and they die in that. Ultimately, what he's saying is to die in sin is to, to die without the forgiveness and justification that's available in Christ. And I put it that way, that justification really has two aspects to it. One, it's the forgiveness of our sin, that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. And so when we trust in him as Savior, we're no longer in debt. We don't, no longer owe that debt. We're no, no longer under that burden of guilt. But more than that, we're not just a, 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 a slate wiped clean. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. What he's saying is, but the only way to that is through faith in Christ. If you do not trust in Christ, then when you die, 
you will stand before God bearing your own guilt. And basically he's saying those are the two options. You can either stand before the Father clothed in the righteousness of Christ or you stand before the Father clothed in your own sin. If you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ then you're welcomed in as a part of the family of heaven. If you're clothed in your own sin you have no place in heaven. And that's why Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot follow. Because they're not believing. They're still in their sin. And, he, and he, then he makes this other statement, and you will seek me, but you'll die in your sin. What does he mean they're going to seek him? That doesn't mean that they're going to seek to know him, but rather they're looking for the Messiah. See, through all through, so that was their expectation. God was going to send a Messiah. The problem is they had different expectations of who we would be. And most importantly, they emphasized Messiah is coming as the future and promised king. And so when he comes, he will, and the, the scripture in the Old Testament speaks of how he will conquer the uh, wicked nations and how he will establish righteousness on the earth. And so they were expecting a Messiah who would arrive on the scene conquer the Roman oppressors and establish peace and righteousness in the world right now. And then when they saw the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and said, and there's another bonus, free food. And so when they saw his healing and his, and his you know, multiplying the food, he thought, so part of that free food and, and, and free medicine, and righteousness and peace and no Romans. But the problem is they expected him to come and conquer. They weren't looking for him to come and suffer. You read through the book of Acts, whenever Paul went into a synagogue, first thing he always said to the Jew first, he would bring the message. He arrived in a new town. He would always go to the Jews first and say, good news, the Messiah has come. And then it says, and he would have to explain to them why the Messiah must suffer. Because that was... That was a foreign concept to them. They weren't looking for a suffering Messiah. I tried to think of, a, of what that might look like to somehow if I can illustrate that, ex, that, that because of expectations, rejection. Imagine you've got, imagine this family has a, a dog, family pet. And one day they come home and the back gate is open and the dog is gone. Um, and, you know, he was just kind of a, family pet. He wasn't one of these spoiled and primped and all that sort of thing. He just, uh, you know, mainly just kind of company and he kept the yard safe. Um, and so he's gone and they keep looking and they're posting uh, papers on, on, telephone, uh, on telephone poles and probably posting to all the social media. Have you, if you see this dog, bring him to us. Well, about three months later, Someone shows up at his door and knocks, says, we, we found your dog and we brought him to you. We, we didn't know he was yours and he's been with us and so here he is, we'd like to present your dog. And they look and here's this dog who's trimmed, and primped. Is he wearing perfume? What does that smell? And, and that kind of a disobedient mutt is now sitting in perfect attention next to them and you know, in a perfect heel. And they look at that dog perfectly 
you know, beauty salon look, Marine Corps obedience. That's not our dog. Oh, yeah, we're sure if it's your dog. We, we, you should have, it was exactly like you, you, you described when we found him. Said, no, that's not our dog. And we're not taking him. You're not, you're not bloating that dog on us because that's not our dog. Our dog didn't look like that and our dog didn't act like that. You see, they had an expectation that he would come back the same scruffy mutt who wouldn't sit on command. Well, in a kind of a similar way, the, the rabbis were expecting a Messiah who would come to be the Messiah they wanted, the Messiah they expected, the Messiah who would do for them the way they wanted him to do. All through that time, they were looking for Messiah. Different ones came along and claimed to be Messiah. And, many, and some followed these various ones who claimed to be Messiah. Through the centuries, different ones have come along uh, claiming the Messiah. For a while in Israel, you could go and see a, a picture of a, an elderly rabbi and, and with, the, with, the sign, with the words in Hebrew, the Messiah has come. And then he died. And for a while, they were thinking, okay, he's going to come back. And he still hasn't come back because he's not the Messiah. But he fit, the, he was perfect. He was such a devout uh, rabbi, consistent, you know, to the traditions of the rabbis. He's got to be the Messiah. See, that's the problem. They're looking for him, but they've got the wrong description. Instead of their expectations, they should have looked to God's word. Passages like Isaiah 53, which we saw earlier, that incredible description of, of the Messiah. And that is so out of character with the messianic expectations that in the scheduled readings in, in the, the, the synagogue, they read all the way through the Torah, the five books of Moses, uh, over a period of time. They keep cycling through the Pentateuch. And they read other portions of scriptures as well. But when they're scheduled the readings of Isaiah, they always skip over chapter 53. And many think that's intentional because it's just a little troubling in how it describes who Jesus is. Many a person involved in sharing their faith with a Jewish friend will uh, kind of pull a tr trick. They'll pull out a, a Bible and, and start reading and say, I want you to tell me who this is. And they start reading Isaiah 53 and they say, well, that's your Jesus. And then they say, look, this is your book, Isaiah. <laughs> um, and they say, let me have that. <laughs> Do you have a, a copy of the uh, Jewish Publication Society version? Uh, I have one in my back pocket here. <laughs> yeah, it's in our book. And I've mentioned to you before, a Jewish friend of mine said, oh, yeah, we call Isaiah the Christian prophet. Think about what you just said. <laughs> but, here's, but see, that's the point. Jesus says, you're going to seek for me. You're going to look for me. But you'll still die in your sins. But because they're looking isn't the open-hearted Lord, I want to follow your Messiah, whoever he is. No, Lord, if you come to me on these terms, in this way, and many approach God that way all the time. God, I'll, I'll worship you if, if you meet this need in this way, at, on this schedule. And if you disappoint me by not fulfilling my agenda for you, then I won't worship you. That's their problem. They weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for God's Messiah. 
they were looking for their plan for a Messiah, and that's the only one they would accept. And so they're going to die in their sins. Jesus goes on in verses 23 to 26. And we see in verse 23 and 24, he says, He said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, You will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he, begin, so he says, in strong, can you look at the language. And again, I always say, if I stood before you and said something about that, like that about myself, I'm from above, you're from beneath. I'm, you're from this world, I'm not. Most of you would be saying, poor Drake. It's been a hot summer. Must have gotten dehydrated. I can't say those sorts of things to myself because I am of this world. I am from beneath. But that's his, what he keeps saying is, I came to this world. You, this is where you started. I didn't have a start here. I came from heaven. And so he says he, he came from above. And it's interesting, that word above is related to the word that's used in, in John chapter 3 when when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you, in the, in, the, in the Greek of John 3, he says, you must be born again. The Greek word is anothen. Here he says, when he says, I'm from above, it's ano. In other words, they're related words. And so when he says, you must be born again, you could also translate that. You must be born from above. And he's, now he's saying, I am from above. And then he goes on and says, uh, make, to make it clear, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I'm he, you will die in your sins. And so what he's saying is, I'm not from here. You are. I'm from above. And because, therefore, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Remember Ezekiel, uh, what Ezekiel said, if someone is still in their wickedness, they'll die in their wickedness. And so he's saying, unless you believe in me, you will have a problem because there's a separation between us. I'm from above. My father's from above. You're here beneath. You're here from below. You're of this world and you need salvation to reconnect you with God. There is a gulf between man and God. God is above. Man is beneath. God is in heaven. Man's from the world. And essential to that, bridging that gap, is what he says. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They must believe I am he. Now, I've been saying it that way because that's the way it reads in my Bible. But if you look at your Bible carefully, when it says, you must believe that I am he, most of your translations, that he is in italics. What that means is it's not in the original text. Literally, he says, I am. You must believe that I am. And with that, he's pointing them to God's name. Remember when Moses met God at the uh, burning bush? 
And he said, God says, I want you to go and tell, tell my people, follow me. Uh, that they're to follow you, Moses, and, and, and you're going to lead them into the wilderness on a way out of Egypt. And Moses said, well, how they, they're going to ask me, who is this God that I speak for? What's his name? Exodus 3.14, God answers that question. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, in the Greek translation of that text, it's the words, a go, a me. I am. And when John says, or Jesus says here, you must believe that I am, a go, a me. So he is using the very words that describe the name of God. You must believe that I am. And he's going to do that a few times in this chapter. Then they said to him, well, who are you? you, you we're, we're to believe you are. Who are you? And Jesus' response is, just as I've been saying to you from the beginning. When he says, you must believe that I am, that just shows you they're not getting it. They don't understand and they don't believe. They don't understand because they won't believe. And so that unbelief becomes clear. He says, I've already been telling you these things. But you won't listen. And so he challenges them in that way. He goes on, verse 26, I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And so Jesus is saying, you must believe in me, but I want you to understand, I am speaking to you what my Father has sent me to speak to you. It's not his message, but the message he has received from his Father. It's not his message, but he is, he is bringing God's message to them. He, in other words, what he's saying is this isn't a self-focused mission. He's coming as a servant on behalf of his father to bring the message of salvation to mankind. But, but by saying that, not only is he showing his humility, he's showing his, the authority of his message. This is, these are not my words. These are God the Father's words to you. And so when you're rejecting his words, you're rejecting God's words. You know, we, do this, we have the same message when we share the scriptures with someone. A lot of times people will get very upset with us when we quote scripture or, or explain ideas that are here in scripture. And they'll be angry at us, but, but we need to make clear, please understand, these are not my ideas. And that's why it's always best to just directly point them to Scripture and make clear to them, your argument is not with me. Your argument is with God because this is God's Word. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Your your argument is really not with me. my, My God in heaven has sent me to tell you these things. When you reject these things, you're rejecting God's authoritative unchanging eternal word and again that's how we have to communicate with people increasingly in 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 our culture there is there is an 
uh, a rejection, an opposition to God's truth. And we need to make it clear it's not a difference between you and me. You know, that's the, that's the phrase and that's the expression that's out there today. Well, that's your truth. And this is my truth. But even Jesus is saying, this is God's truth. It's not your opinion, my opinion. But, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato. Oh, there's no difference. Though you're wrong. It's tomato. Uh, It's saying, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what does God say? Uh, Mr. Spurgeon said this in a sermon on the infallibility of Scripture. He said, the rock of God's word does not shift like the quicksand of modern scientific theology. One said to his minister, my dear sir, surely you ought to adjust your beliefs to the progress of science. That's... um, Victorian speech for follow the science. (laughs) Yes, said he, but I have not had time to do it today for I have not yet read the morning papers. One would need to read the morning papers and take in every new edition to know where about scientific theology now stands for it's always chopping and changing. And that's true of science and that's true of so many uh, uh, theological fads. It's amazing to me what's being preached and by whom it's being preached in pulpits today. I guess you might call that scientific theology. But science is constantly on the change. And so he, so he says, I don't know what science teaches until I've read today's paper. Because I, it, what I knew yesterday isn't science today. I distinctly remember looking at the TV and seeing the president promising me, if you take this vaccine, you will not get this virus. He got it and I got it. Science changed. (laughs) You know, that scientific promise does not have the authority of God's word. And so Spurgeon said, the only thing that is certain about the false science of this age is that it will soon be disproved. But God's word is unchanging. That's our struggle. Our culture is telling us that's old thinking. Actually, it's eternal thinking. It's not today's fad, tomorrow's forgotten memory. It's God's eternal changing world. The God who made this world tells us this is his truth. And so Jesus says, well, they could walk away with a different opinion, but he keeps warning them. And if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And Then Christ goes on to speak of his faithfulness to the Father. Verse 27 and 28, they they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Again, that's what needs to be our attitude as we're sharing Christ with people, as we're speaking truth to people. These are not my words. This is God's truth. Frankly, sometimes I have to wrestle with it, but I bow before God's truth. Verse 27 says, They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. The greatest theologians in Israel, 
the scholars who were there standing in the shadow of the temple as they were arguing with Jesus didn't understand he was speaking of God the Father. Again, they didn't understand because they wouldn't understand. Unbelief is fundamentally not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. It's a will issue. And so they didn't understand because they wouldn't understand that he was speaking of the Father. And so verse 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Now that when you lift up the Son of Man, that doesn't mean when you exalt him in worship. That's in John, that's how he describes crucifixion. And he says, when you've crucified the Son of Man, that will be the greatest testimony to who he is as he's fulfilling prophetic scriptures. And he even demonstrated that as he's quoting scriptures. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he was, the man of sorrows, afflicted, bearing our guilt, bearing our wounds, dying for our sin. He was showing he was the Messiah by being lifted up and crucified. And so he says, when you, when the, when you lift up the Son of Man, he goes on to say, you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And what is he saying when he, what does he mean when he's saying that? When you lift, when you crucify me, you will know that I am and that I do my Father's will. I don't think he's saying then that when I'm crucified, that all those Jewish leaders he was talking to would become believers. Those same people, after Jesus died and was buried. Remember, they went, to, they went to Pilate and said, we got a problem. He predicted he was to be resurrected. You need to seal that tomb so he can't be resurrected. And then next thing you know, the Roman guards are coming to them and said, you have a problem. These angels appeared to us, and, the, and when they came, the, they opened up the, tent, the tomb, and it's empty. He's gone. And what did they say? Did they gather together the Sanhedrin and say, we need to reconsider this in view of Messianic scripture? No, what they said is they paid off the guards and said, don't worry, we'll, we'll cover you. You just tell people that you fell asleep and the disciples stole the, the body while you were asleep. That's right there, it's self-contradictory, right? Can you imagine someone taking someone to court? So you fell asleep, yet you were asleep, Yes. And the disciples took the body. And how do you know it was the disciples if you were asleep? You can't have this both ways, gentlemen. <laughs> Which is it? But, but in other words, they concocted. But the whole point is, rather than believe, they knew his prediction. They tried to defeat his prediction. When his prediction came true, they tried to cover it up. They didn't want to believe. So when Jesus says, when I'm, resurrected, when I'm crucified, then you will know I am he. Or, literally again, I am. I do nothing of myself but as the Father speaks. It seems to refer to a coming belief. First of all, it may refer to the, the Jews. Many Jews did come to faith. Pentecost, 3,000 people believed. When Peter got up and said to Israel, if I can loosely translate, you have a problem. God sent his Messiah and you killed him. And that message finally 
burst into light into hearts. And they thought, what do we do now? We've been pleading for God to send his Messiah. He sends his Messiah and we crucify him. Brothers, what do we do? And he speaks the message of repentance and faith. So it could refer to those who trusted Christ. It it may indeed even refer to the the coming conversion of the nation of Israel. You know, Paul describes in Romans, you know, one day all Israel will be saved. He's speaking there of the elect Israel. Zechariah describes that in chapter 12, verse 10. In Zechariah 12, 10, we read, God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Which is a remarkable statement. When did Israel pierce God? That's on the quiz, so you think about that. They will look upon me, God says, whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. Israel will finally, as a nation, some Israelites believe the nation as a whole was in unbelief. At the end, when all Israel is saved, the nation as a whole will believe and some will disbelieve. But it says they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as, as one who mourns for his own son, only son. They will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Can you imagine the grieving repentance when the nation finally says, God sent his Messiah thousands of years ago. And what did we do? It's been said, and I think it's probably correct, Isaiah 53 is the prayer of repentance. Because it talks about how we didn't believe. When God was pouring out his wrath on him for our sin, we thought it was for his sin. Little did we know. So when he says, when you lift me up, you will believe. It could refer to the Pentecost and others that followed the thousands who came to faith. It could refer to the ultimate conversion. Ultimately, though, it, there is a time when everyone will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 describe that. And God will give him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. They will realize that as they had lifted him up, now they believe he is the I Am. The problem is, but then it'll be too late. Here he's speaking of the fact that all of creation, angels and demons, saved and lost, must still bow before him and say, you are God. Because he is. And so he said, you will crucify me. And you will know. But if you do not believe now, you will die in your sin. Going on in verse 28, he says, You will know that I am, and I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. He's not saying that I always do what he wants 
aren't I wonderful? He's not patting himself on the back for being such a good person. Instead, he's pointing to the fact that what he does is what God tells him. And so he's making it absolutely clear. The miracles you see, the words you hear, are not mine. They are, they, are, they are from the Father so that you would believe in him, trust him, turn to him, and bow before him. That's, so he's saying, it's not about me, it's about the Father. And he's saying, God approves of him. And so he's basically saying, God approves of me. I think you should agree with God and approve of me and believe in me. For if you don't, you will die in your sin. Some did believe, we're told in verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed. Now that could be some of them actually came to saving faith. But we see in other places in John that there's different kinds of belief. They may have believed him in some sense that he's from God, that he's, that he's Messiah, but didn't actually, without trusting in him as Savior. So remember that Jesus, we told that John begins early, Jesus didn't entrust himself to everyone because he knew what's in the heart of man. And back in chapter 6, some of the, his disciples turned away and said, okay, this is too much. But, but in other words, some were being convinced. So the majority weren't. The majority rejecting him and the opposition will grow. Some were thinking this might be true and some were, were, were tr truly trusting in Christ. So we see a mixed reactions. But we learn a lesson from Jesus. When we share God's truth, when we share God's gospel, we are communicating this is not my message. And that's the value of, of pointing to scripture. And these aren't my words, these are God's words. This is not my idea, this is God's idea. And, and God opened my eyes to, to understand and believe, and you need to believe God as well. But, he, but he's faithful to also give a warning, if you don't, you die in your sins. You bear your own penalty, you bear your own guilt. And so, Believe now or die in your sins. Now this kind of reminds me of a story that I've heard. There was a, um, a, a wealthy Irish lord, landlord, and he came to know Christ as Savior. And this wealthy man was anxious to let those uh, people who, his, his tenants, you know, the, the uh, rental farmers that, that, that would work and, and uh, pay them off and with a portion of their harvest. But all the people that lived, uh, if you will, in the feudal system there, they were under his care, uh, but lost and living like lost people. And he wanted them to know Christ. And so uh, how, did he, how would he communicate to them God's marvelous provision for their salvation? So he decided to put up a notice throughout his whole estate and the whole region around um, that said on a given day he would be in his office down by the lodge gates from 10 o'clock in the morning until 12 noon. That's two hours. So he set the date, he set the time. And he said during that time he would be prepared to pay the debts of all his tenants who brought their unpaid bills with them. 
So that was out way in advance. For days, the notices were the cause of much excitement. People talked of the strange offer, and, and some declared it to be a hoax. Maybe they called it fake news. But others would look at the bill that was posted and said, that's his signature. And so some said, well, there must be a catch somewhere. And a few thought it was so that he was just, he must be losing his mind. So there was, you can imagine, the mixed reactions. When the announced day came, many of the people could be seen making their way to the office. And as the time approached, a great crowd had gathered around the door. Promptly at 10, the landlord and his secretary drove to the gate, left the carriage, and without a word to anyone, entered the office and closed the door. Outside, a great discussion had begun. It became more vehement every minute. Was there anything to it? Did he really mean it? Would he only make a fool of one who brought the evidence of his indebtedness? Some insisted it was his actual a signature at the foot of the notice, and surely he would not dishonor his name. But an hour passed, and no one had gone in to present his claim. If someone suggested to another to, to make the venture in, he would be met with by the angry response, I don't know so much. I have no need to go in. Let someone else try it first, someone who owes more than I do. And so the precious moments slipped away. Finally, when it was nearing 12 o'clock, an aged couple from the farthest bounds of the estate came hobbling along arm in arm. The old man had a bundle of bills clutched tightly in one hand. In quavering tones, he inquired, Is it true, neighbor, that the landlord be paying the debts of all who come today? He ain't paid none yet, said one. We think it's just a cruel joke, said another. The old couple's eyes filled with tears. Is it all a mistake? We hoped it was true and thought how good it would be to be able to die free of debt. They were turning away with sadness when somebody said, No one's tried it yet. Why not go in? If he pays your bills, come out quickly and tell us, and we'll go in too. To this, the old folks agreed and timidly opened the door and entered the office, where a cordial welcome awaited them. In answer to their question as to whether the notice was true, the secretary said, Do you think the landlord would deceive you? Let me see your bills. They were all presented, carefully tabulated, and a check made out to cover them. Overwhelmed with gratitude, the old man and his wife arose to leave, but the secretary said, just be seated. You must remain here until the office closes at noon. They explained the crowd outside was waiting for verification from them of the strange offer. The landlord said, no, you took me at my word, and they must do the same if they want their debts paid. And so minutes passed. Outside, the people moved restlessly about, watching the closed door, but none lifted the latch. At high noon, the door opened, and the old folks came out first. Did he keep his word? The throng asked, yes, neighbors. Here is his check, and it's good as gold. Why didn't you come out and tell us angrily, asked many. He said, we must wait inside. You must come as we did and take him at his word. A moment later, the landlord and his secretary came out and hurried to the carriage. The crowd pressing about them, holding out hands full of personal bills and crying, won't you do for us as you did for these folks? But rising in his carriage, the landlord said, it's too late now. I gave you every opportunity. I would have paid for you all. But you would not believe me. And then he likened the events of the morning to the way men treat God's offer to free the sinner of all that divine justice has against him. Solemnly he warned them of the folly 
of passing up so great salvation until the day of grace was over and it was too late to be saved. Christ came to die for us and in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, If he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. When you stand before God and in his presence, there are only two options. You will be in your sin or you will be in the righteousness of Christ. What will it be? Will you take Christ as his word? Or will you die in your sin? Now, I know many of us have already taken Christ as his word. We went in, our bills were paid, and we're rejoicing. Well, this is a reminder to us of the urgency of the matter. To not trust in Christ is to die in sin and to bear the penalty of that sin for eternity. And so that calls us and reminds us of the need to pray, the need to share the message of salvation in Christ. God's message, not ours. But if you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, if you've yet to trust in him, then please hear this message and think of being in that crowd outside the door Foolishly missing the offer of salvation, belief, and join together in praying for those who need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught your word, who lived your word, who gave your word. Father, I do pray that not one in this room would miss out on the saving grace of Jesus Christ by choosing not to believe. Father, I pray your grace would open eyes and hearts to receive the message and, and truth of the gospel. And we join our hearts and pray for loved ones. And Father, we pray for these around us in our community that need to know Jesus Christ, that you bring light into darkness. And we pray this with grateful hearts, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.